Sit Rep on BFBS. Has NATO been caught out by ambiguous warfare? Exercise Black Eagle, is the Cold War really on the way back? We need to find a solution, and that solution, we all believe, is a political solution. Israel bolsters its military as the conflict in Gaza deepens, and the last crew member of the Enola Gay dies. We remember Major Theodore Van Kirk. Hello, I'm James Hurst in for Kate Chabot, and we start this week with a stark warning from British MPs that NATO has serious deficiencies in its readiness to deal with a new threat from Russia. In a report released this morning, the Commons Defence Committee says the alliance needs radical reform and, the, and it should have more troops and military hardware in the Baltic states. All this because of what's been happening in Ukraine. Not an attack or invasion by Russia but what the committee brands ambiguous warfare. Its chairman, Rory Stewart. What Russia has done in eastern Ukraine is to start an insurgency. They've basically whipped up ultra-nationalist sentiment. They've provided the weapons, they've provided the cash to allow this to get off the ground. It's very, very similar to the kind of situations we've seen in Afghanistan and the Balkans and Syria. It isn't really anything to do with the people in Ukraine. Ukraine and eastern Ukraine is becoming a proxy for a broader conflict. So the reason we should see it in the most stark terms is it's driven by a sense of Russian ultranationalism, ideas which are hundreds of years old about extending the boundaries of Russia. And the convention since the Second World War, which has been what NATO has always been about, is you do not extend your own territory through force. We haven't really been thinking about how to deal with the threat posed by a state like Russia. How serious do you think that threat now is? I think the threat's very serious. I've just come back from the Ukraine, where I've seen what Russia's been doing there, which is supporting ultra-nationalist groups. And eastern Ukraine now feels almost like the kinds of things we were seeing in the Balkans. These strange militia groups, now with Russian weapons behind them, very, very troubling. So I don't think there's a high probability of an attack on a Baltic state. I think it's still a low probability. But we need to ensure that it remains a low probability by making sure that we have the forces to deter it. If we start moving more equipment and more people to NATO's eastern border, exercising there much more, is there not a danger we inflame the situation and take ourselves back towards a new Cold War? Very good question. And, of course, the reason we've been very cautious about doing anything like this with Russia is exactly to stop inflaming the situation. But he's gone so far, he's pushed it so far in Ukraine that it would now be irresponsible to do nothing. We can't continue to say that just because Putin's paranoid that we're going to do absolutely nothing. We have to protect ourselves. What about Britain's decision to uh, remove all its troops from Germany by 2020. Is that something that we should be revisiting as part of our NATO contribution to responding to this? We could certainly look at that again, but Germany would be a means to an end, not an end in itself. We kept those troops in Germany when Germany was the front line. The front line of NATO is now the Baltic states. So if we were to keep a presence in Germany, it would be to resupply that front line, which is much, much further east. There's also this question about Article 5. Uh, you suggest... That you, you asked for NATO to look at it again. You seem slightly equivocal about it, but you seem to be suggesting it's actually not up to the job. Article 5 says that we have an obligation to protect a country against armed attack. 
The problem is that what we're seeing in Ukraine is a very clever combination of propaganda, of deniable militia groups, of freelance weekend fighters, of weapons going across the border. The danger in the Baltic is we could see something like that happen, maybe in Nerva in eastern Estonia, or maybe in Latvia, these separatist groups would emerge. Would it be an armed attack, and therefore would we be able to respond? So NATO needs to begin thinking those issues through. The chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, Rory Stewart, speaking to me earlier. Well, with us, as usual, our resident defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and on the line, the chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee and former Foreign Defence Secretary, Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Uh, Sir Malcolm, have the Defence Committee got the approach on this right, that NATO needs to, to build up its, its military capabilities in response, or are they going to cause a, a, a diplomatic tidal wave? Broadly speaking, the Defence Committee are right, because for the first uh, 20, 25 years after the end of the Cold War, uh, we all assumed that uh, even although there would be difficulties between Russia and uh, Western Europe and NATO countries, uh, it would not involve military adventurism. It would not involve trying to change uh, borders by military means. And what happened in Crimea and now in eastern Ukraine is is a, a complete shock to the system, because... Uh, Russia, under Mr. Putin, has these ambitions to try to resurrect or recreate, not communism, they're not interested in that, but the old Russian Empire, which controlled not just Ukraine, but also the Baltic states and a lot of other parts of the Soviet Union, which are now separate countries. Do we not risk, however, giving uh, President Putin a perceived justification under some circumstances that, that Russia is coming under threat from NATO? He may use such an argument, but it would be pretty unconvincing. Uh, what NATO should be doing and is doing is a response to an aggression that's already happened, not one that we think might happen. Um, Putin has shown himself perfectly willing in an opportunistic way uh, to use his military to annex Crimea and destabilize eastern Ukraine. That's made people in a number of NATO countries, such as Romania, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, very, very nervous, and rightly so. Christopher, uh, NATO, in a sense, was coming to a bit of a watershed anyway because it's uh, heading into a summit uh, where its biggest operation for for decades in Afghanistan was drawing down. Uh, how much does it need to to reshape to to face this? Okay, um, reshape is not so much uh, reshaping and changing. I think NATO uh, could look at its own terms of reference. Uh, and you were talking about Article 5, but it could look at its terms of reference. But let's put this in some perspective. When this whole Ukraine thing uh, became clear that it it was going to become far worse than than separatists, um, General Breedlove, Sakir, really got his act together. And I was in Croatia when he sent a team down there, and it was a three-star, led by a three-star, to suss out whether it was necessary to put, or whether NATO could actually put a forward uh, command uh, operations centre uh, that far, and because it was a vulnerable part of it, a uh, vulnerable part of, of, of Europe, and, and where there are obligations. So I think, to some extent, we must be aware to say, right, if you send you send a, 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 a brigade uh, size force somewhere, or put a thousand men into, I don't know, Lithuania or whatever, that is not. The, the true problem. The true problem is twofold. One is, is the politicians. Generals don't go to war. Politicians send them to war. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, if you look at what's happened about 
uh, everything everything from um, all the political decisions that we've had so far. They've been hard to get together. And when you think of all those NATO members, it's not unlikely. The other part of it is intelligence, the intelligence reading of this. And it's interesting, I mean, um, I mean Sir Malcolm would know this, uh, your, one of your predecessors, Sir Malcolm, Lord Carrington, he was Defence Secretary, wasn't he? He was Foreign Secretary. And I remember him saying that when he went into the Foreign Office, he said, how many wars have, or uh, emergencies have there been protected by intelligence since World War Two? And it was about five. And I think we start looking at how intelligence has served both NATO and individual countries all have their own idea of protection. So, Malcolm, given that that, that actually the the Defence Committee is highlighting this ambiguous warfare, should NATO be developing its own intelligence capability? Well, two points. First of all, on what was just said a moment ago, yes, it's quite right that intelligence has often not predicted a particular war breaking out. But normally what good intelligence has done is it's identified uh, the conditions that exist in another country that make it more likely than in the past that there might be a military activity. Uh, good intelligence, if we'd had it, would have told us that the, the Falklands were about to be invaded because there was a lot of information in Argentina that that's what they were thinking of. Good intelligence on Russia uh, should have uh, enabled and did enable some people to realize that Putin was an opportunist who would try to uh, use the circumstances to uh, uh, occupy uh, Crimea. So intelligence plays a very, very important uh, part in this overall equation. Uh, gentlemen, uh, stay with us. W- w- what the Defence Committee has been looking at is the uh, longer term. In the immediate term this week, President Obama has announced a widening of US sanctions on Russia over its role in the Ukraine crisis, uh, and it followed similar sanctions announced by the European Union. Mr Obama said he was introducing uh, tough measures on Russia's energy, arms and finance sectors. Russia is once again isolating itself from the international community, setting back decades of genuine progress. And it doesn't have to come to this. It didn't have to come to this. It does not have to be this way. This is a choice that Russia, and President Putin in particular, has made. Now, when you add in the EU sanctions, it's it's restricting sales of arms, equipment for the oil industry, and Russian state banks barred from raising money in Western capital markets. Uh, So, Malcolm, you've said that sanctions can work, but only if they bite. Are these sanctions going to bite? Well, for the first time, they have a good chance of biting. Up till now... The only reaction by both the Europeans and the Americans uh, to uh, the ag- aggression by Putin in Ukraine uh, has been visa controls and asset freezes of 40 or 50 uh, Russian cronies of Putin. I'm sure they were inconvenienced by this. They wouldn't like it. But the idea that Putin would change his whole foreign policy because of that was always naive and unconvincing. Now, Putin is not a fanatic. He's not a warmonger. He's an opportunist. And if he thinks he can uh, achieve control of parts of Ukraine without paying a heavy price for it, then it's not surprising that's what he's trying to do. What we now have are sanctions that will make that much more difficult for him because the sanctions that are now envisaged, the uh, financial sanctions denying Russian banks access to Western capital markets, denying the export of uh, uh, energy, high technology for the uh, uh, oil industry, and other steps of that kind, that really hurts the Russian economy in a very serious way. We've seen how with Iran, the Iranians have had to come to the negotiating table over their nuclear program precisely because these kinds of sanctions have had a severe impact on the Iranian economy. So Putin, uh, he may not be an economist, but he will know perfectly well that he cannot afford 
build up his armed forces and have an expensive uh, foreign policy unless the Russian economy is doing well. Are economic sanctions the only way to change his actions? Well, the, the, the other way is to send troops in and have a war, uh, frankly. I mean, you know, if, if you're getting military aggression, uh, then if it's something that immediately threatens your fundamental security, that's when countries go to war with each other. Now, nobody in their right mind wants a general European war, even over Ukraine. Uh, but if you're not going to have a war, and that clearly is the right decision, then you can't just say, well, because of that, we're going to say how terrible it is, but not do anything that is within our power. Uh, economic sanctions that bite uh, do have a powerful impact. Uh, Christopher, of course, uh, President Putin knows that uh, Europe um, has its own economic problems, and he's, he's hit back with um, fruit and vegetable sanctions against Poland. Uh, can the world make him take notice through economic sanctions, and if not that, how? It's not so much economic sanctions. I mean, we've got to do two things. One, we've got to see who's doing negotiations. You look at Chancellor Merkel at the moment. She's known Putin for about 14, 15 years. There is a good conduit through which there might be some room for manoeuvre, and certainly if there is some, that she's going to find out or whatever. But the other thing that has that got to be simply asked, um, what does Putin have to do? to lift these sanctions, to, to get the whole thing back on track. And I think it's, it's really simple, but very hard for him to do. It's all very simple what Putin has to do. He has to close the Russian-Ukraine border, stop equipment going across, and isolate the militia. Job done. That's all that's got to happen. And the whole world will start, will sit back in their chairs and say, right, how do we renew this relationship? So, Malcolm, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I strongly agree with what's just been said. That's absolutely right. It's the easiest thing in the world. But nobody's talking about sanctions going on for weeks, months or years. They could be over in a couple of weeks if uh, Putin does exactly what's been recommended. But, but it, it does feel like we're getting into something that could drag on for a very long time. That it could be a long-term new that. phase no. in world relations. Well, you, you could be right, obviously, but I wouldn't assume it. I mean, as I said earlier, Putin's an opportunist. When he realises, as hopefully he will now realise, that the price he will pay in terms of Russia's own economy is too great. It's not worth it. And remember, the Ukrainian military are fighting rather well. They've already recaptured Slobyansk, where the uh, rebels first uh, took control. They're moving closer to Donetsk. It looks as if it's only a matter of time before, through military means, the Ukrainians will recover control of their territory. So why should Putin risk serious ongoing damage to his economy uh, when he has no friends in the world in this? Because of the bringing down of the Malaysian airliner, not just Europe and uh, North America are upset, uh, Asia and other parts of the world are equally unimpressed by his foreign policy. So he's, uh, he's no fool, Putin. Uh, he will hopefully be realising that the, 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 the cost of this adventurism is far outweighed by the disadvantages. Um, there's one thing I, I, I'd like to know the answer to, and I don't think that many people do at the moment. Um, Putin may run everything, as far as Russia is concerned. I just wonder how much control, absolute control, he has over the policy that's going on, military policy, on the Ukraine-Russian border at the moment. And there's the key to it. In, who takes the, who takes the, say, enough's enough? In, in ten seconds, Sir Malcolm, do you have an answer to that? Do you know the answer well, to that? Put, yes, uh, Putin has complete control over Russian citizens, whether they're so-called volunteers or special forces or sending a military equipment to the rebels. He doesn't have complete control over the rebels themselves. But if they are no longer getting Russian government support, either through troops or through equipment, then they would have to surrender within weeks, not months. 
to Malcolm Riffian. Many thanks for your thoughts and uh, insights today. Uh, the response to Russia this week hasn't just been sanctions. There has also been an announcement that more than 1,300 British troops will soon be heading for Poland for the first battle group scale exercise in the region since 2008. This is not quite the rolling exercises in the Baltics suggested by the Commons Defence Committee, but it still sends a clear message, as Jeff Mead reports. It's a case of back to the future, as British armour looks set again to mount major manoeuvres in Eastern Europe. Exercise Black Eagle, which will run from late October to early December, will be the biggest in the region for six years. British forces trained in Poland every year from 1996 until 2005. The updated version will be based around the city of Zagan, just across the border from the German city of Dresden. It's the area where the Great Escape took place. Months in the planning, it's a huge logistic undertaking involving a major movement of troops and equipment, many from Britain. A return to the sort of exercise Britain used to value before Afghanistan and budget pressure intervened, as Robert Fox, defence correspondent for London's Evening Standard, explained. Sort of been in the schedule of exercises, but it's the kind of exercise that successive defence secretaries have tried to keep British forces out because they don't want to spend too much money. Now it's quite clear that this is important to make a show of strength and it shows how the Ukrainian crisis is going military rather than diplomatic. In all, some 1,350 UK personnel will take part. They'll use 350 vehicles, nearly a third armoured, including 20 Challenger 2 tanks. The battle group's expected to be built around the Tidworth-based King's Royal Hussars, although the list of units taking part is still being finalised for what's seen as a show of force to reassure Britain's allies in the region. But how might Russia react? Michael Clark's director of the military think tank, Rusi. Oh, and President Putin will condemn this exercise undoubtedly and he'll say that it violates the understanding, it wasn't an agreement, but an understanding in the 1990s that NATO would not deploy forces permanently east of the old lines. But NATO now almost certainly is going to deploy permanently combat formations to the Baltics and Poland. And what the West will be saying to President Putin is the 1990s are irrelevant. You have behaved in such a way as to tread across the uh, understandings about territorial integrity. So what do you expect us to do? We have to uh, reassure our new allies in NATO that we're serious about it. So this autumn, British will train alongside Polish and American forces. Ostensibly, the exercise's military reason is to sharpen conventional warfighting skills post-Afghanistan. But dispatching a battle group is also a clear political message, an obvious signal to Moscow that NATO's reviewing readiness on its eastern border, with a view to more permanent basing there, as recently outlined by General Philip Breedlove, the alliance's supreme allied commander, Europe. I think that all of our NATO nations are looking now at opportunities to have troop presence in these nations that we need to reassure. Most of the nations are doing that by looking at the opportunity for exercises in the future. And some, like the U.S., are looking at possibilities of a little more lasting contribution, both inside and outside of exercises. So many nations, like U.K., uh, are thinking about those options, and I applaud their their uh, their concern. Britain currently has four RAF typhoons in Lithuania, supporting NATO's beefed-up air policing mission in the Baltics, and is already sending a smaller number of troops to Poland for an exercise next month called Sabre Junction, though perhaps Sabre Rattling would be an apt to name. But General Breedlove says diplomatic, not military action, is the long-term answer, and urged Russia to cut off arms to Ukrainian separatists. We need to 
uh, find a solution. And that solution, we all believe, is a political solution, vice a military solution. And I think the first ingredient of that solution is close the border. No more movement of fighters, no more movement of material, no more movement of armored equipment, no more movement of financing into Ukraine. Close the border, seal the border, and then have negotiations among the parties to come to a peaceful resolution. Though so far neither military escalation nor trade sanctions seem to have affected Russia's ambition in Ukraine, but if NATO is to have any relevance, it needs to act. The trick is judging the right level of response. Jeff Mead reporting. Still to come, the last crew member of the plane that dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima has died. We remember Theodore Van Kirk. And a hundred years on, the world prepares to remember the Great War. This is BFBS. Cigarette. But before that, let's uh, turn our attention to the other major conflicts currently pressing on the world's shoulders as Israel says it will press ahead with its military offensive in Gaza despite international criticism of the shelling of a UN-run school in which 15 people were killed. The United Nations in Gaza says it's certain that Israeli tanks fired the shells which hit a building in which more than 3,000 Palestinians were sheltering. Uh, Christopher, this just one incident, but a particular incident that has uh, gathered the, the recent headlines. This does seem to be getting worse each day. Uh, last week you were talking about a, a long-term ceasefire. We seem to be no closer to that. The long-term ceasefire can only come about, and in other words, uh, a, a, a truce. It's not going to be a peace agreement, a truce. can only come about when, from the Israeli point of view, especially Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister's point of view, is this. All the tunnels that go from Gaza into Israel and go into Egypt or the other way, they are sealed off, destroyed, whatever. And we, we're talking in hundreds. We're yep. not talking about a dozen of them. Right? I, I, I heard a, a fairly senior Israeli last night saying that they can't all be closed. That's right, that's right. But that's the idea. So if you can't close them off, you then take control of them. So anybody who pops his head out is going to get it blown off, right? That's, that's one side of it. The second part of it, and that is probably the most important because that's where the Israelis are vulnerable, the second part of it is probably an attempt to take out the uh, Hamas leadership or destabilise the Hamas leadership considerably. Those two conditions have to be met as far as Netanyahu is concerned. Um, there is no public opposition to that policy. Uh, the Israeli government is riding at something like 90% popularity, maybe even higher, for the action. Not for the consequences, but for the action. But briefly, uh, this uh, second attack, seemingly, on a, on a UN-run school in Gaza, the UN Secretary-General yesterday described it as unjustifiable. More than 100 people killed in Gaza on Wednesday. Are Israel in danger of, of losing their allies in the world and, and having the rest of the world see them as the bad guys? And if so, will that change things? I think we've got the rest of the world seeing them as the bad guys. Well, in they've this. still got yeah. some, some support. America, America's going to support, and don't forget, going up to an election, all those sort of things about the, the Jewish lobby in, in Washington. The most important thing is, um, I mean, it really is the most important thing to, to think about this problem. The West, with all its powers and with all its influences, are incapable of stopping it. Let's turn from a conflict of the present day to... 
one of the past and the final surviving member of the air crew which dropped the atom bomb over Hiroshima in the Second World War has died. Major, Major Theodore Van Kirk was 93 and was navigator on the bomber Enola Gay. Tim Cooper has his story. The first atom bomb was called Little Boy. It was loaded onto a B-29 long-range bomber, Enola Gay, and flown on the 6th of August 1945 to Japan. It was released over the city of Hiroshima. An estimated 140,000 people either died that day or in the weeks and months that followed from radiation sickness. It was the first time a nuclear weapon had been used in warfare. 24-year-old Theodore Van Kirk was navigator on Enola Gay that day and was the last surviving member of the crew. He recalls the moment the bomb was released. When the bomb left the airplane, the airplane surged because 9,400 pounds had left the plane all of a sudden. You had to get away from it, and that way to get away from it was to make the 150-degree turn and run like the devil. It took 43 seconds from the time the bomb left the airplane until it exploded about 1,800 feet above the ground. Coming back from the mission, I, there was a minor discussion about, uh, not minor, a moderate discussion about uh, the bomb and everything of this type. And somebody made the remark, I think it was Dick Nelson, our radio operator, and he says, you know, he said, I think this war is over. He was soon proved right. A further atom bomb was dropped over Nagasaki three days later, after which the Imperial Japanese government capitulated. Many believe the bombings avoided the need for a protracted land invasion of Japan, costing far more human life than was lost at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But a new, horrifying form of warfare had been unleashed. But I want people to recognize the dangers of the nuclear bombs and the fact that they can destroy the world if they are released. The closest we came, as far as I know, the closest we came was during the times of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was as close as I want to come. Other than that, I would hope that atomic bombs will never again be used for any reason. Van Kirk was active until he died from natural causes at home in Georgia in America. His name will always be associated with the atom bomb and the bomber Enola Gay, but his own most powerful Second World War memory wasn't in the air at all. My most significant memory being bombed on the ground. When the Germans were, dive, were bombing and they started dive bombing us. That was not fun. And you can look back down the road and see the sparks flying off the road coming toward you. That wasn't fun. Major Theodore Van Kirk, who died this week at the age of 93. Christopher, do you think he was right that the atom bomb and its successors, uh, technical successors, are now a relic of the past? Certainly not. No, they're not. Um, I mean, the reasons for having them then was that we had developed them and nobody knew the power uh, of, of, on the effects of a nuclear, uh, a nuclear weapon. I mean, that was an 1,800-foot air burst as opposed mm. to a ground burst. And so we hadn't even worked out the difference between what happens when you blow it, uh, explode it above the ground, which is a blast effect, and then, uh, and then radiation effect below. I think that you've got to remember that the United Kingdom is about to make a decision or in about two years' time, make a decision about uh, re replacing its own nuclear system. 
and every mark at the moment says, uh, yes, it will be replaced in some form. The, um, all the time it exists, then it's not an end of an era, etc. And curiously, if you talk to people in Whitehall and say, well, which way do you think it's going? And they say, well, I will tell you something, mostly. Uh, since last year, it could have been difficult. But President Putin has made it very, very easy. And the other thing is, do you remember Chernobyl? Mm. The, Chernobyl, the, that was the nuclear power station that went wonky. And the consequences went right across the world. It proved that you couldn't be neutral because the effects of Chernobyl hit everybody. Before we go, uh, just time to, to look ahead to this weekend and Deep Monday, remembering the start of the First World War 100 years on. Do you think most people, as we go into this weekend, really have, a, have an understanding of what happened and what it meant? Absolutely not. Um, it is the most remarkable war to try and figure out, apart from, apart from the Balkans War, which nobody could, could understand the words and the, the names of the people, etc. No. Uh, First World War, most people don't know about it. I mean, if, you, if you said, what is the biggest, the most important history of the First World War, they'd probably tell you it was Blackadder. And then after that, it was what they learned at school through the war poets. But it is the war that produced the cenotaph. And it is the war of remembrance, and that is the most important part of it. And we will continue to learn over the coming days as we remember. That is all for this week. Thank you to Christopher and also to Sir Malcolm Rifkind for joining us. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. I'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening and goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.